Audible presents a must-hear article from the pages of Harvard Business Review. When you're finished listening, be sure to go to audible.com and enter Harvard Business Review in the search box. You'll find our extensive HBR archive and learn how to subscribe to our monthly audio edition. Now, in Profits Without Prosperity, Roger L. Martin, the dean of the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto from 1998 to 2013, writes about how to rein in the dynamic that enriches executives and financiers at everyone else's expense. When Roberto Goizetta died of cancer in 1997 at the age of 65, he was a billionaire. Not bad for a Cuban emigre who had come to the United States as a teenager. He was by no means the first immigrant in America to become a billionaire, but the others had made their fortunes by founding and building companies or taking them public. Goizetta made his as the CEO of Coca-Cola. His timing was impeccable. In 1980, he became the chief executive of a company that owned no natural resources and had precious little physical capital. The talent economy had just come of age, and rewards for its key productive assets made an epical shift in his favor. His company was among the most valuable in the world for its iconic brand and the talent that built and maintained it. Goizetta epitomized that talent, and investors paid for it as never before. A century ago, natural resources were the most valuable assets. Standard oil needed hydrocarbons. U.S. steel needed iron ore and coal. The Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company needed real estate. As the 20th century progressed, America's leading companies grew large and prosperous by spending increasing amounts of capital to acquire and exploit oil, mineral deposits, forests, water, and land. As recently as 50 years ago, 72% of the top 50 U.S. companies by market capitalization still owed their positions to the control and exploitation of natural resources. To be sure, those companies needed lots of labor as they continued to grow, but mainly for routine intensive jobs. Those jobs were largely fungible, and individual workers had little bargaining power. Until they were enabled and motivated to unionize, suppliers of labor took a distant third place in the economic pecking order behind natural resources and providers of capital. The status quo began to change in 1960 with an extraordinary flowering of creative work that required substantial independent judgment and decision-making. Creative positions accounted for a mere 16% of all jobs in 1960, having grown by only three percentage points over the previous 50 years. That proportion doubled over the next 50 years, reaching 33% by 2010. The top 50 market cap companies in 1963 included a relatively new breed of corporation, exemplified by IBM, which held the fourth spot. Natural resources played almost no role in IBM's success, and although capital was not trivial, anybody at the company would have argued that its intensively creative employees, its scientists and engineers, its marketers and salespeople, were at the heart of its competitive advantage and drove its success in the marketplace. The same could be said for Eastman Kodak, Procter & Gamble, and Radio Corporation of America, all businesses whose success was built on talent. By 2013, more than half the top 50 companies were talent-based, including three of the four biggest, Apple, Microsoft, and Google. The other was ExxonMobil. Only 10 owed their position on the list to the ownership of resources. 
Over the past 50 years, the U.S. economy has shifted decisively from financing the exploitation of natural resources to making the most of human talent. From Dream Asset to Dream Deal Through the 1970s, the CEOs of large, publicly traded U.S. companies earned on average less than $1 million in total compensation in current dollars, not even a tenth of what they earn today. In fact, from 1960 to 1980, the providers of capital got an ever-improving deal from the chief executives of those companies, who earned 33% less per dollar of net company income in 1980 than they had in 1960. In that era, the situation was similar across the talent classes, from professional to scientific to athletic to artistic. After 1980, however, it seemingly became essential to motivate people financially to exercise their talent. Skilled leaders saw a major boost in income for two reasons. High earners kept more money. After the Great Depression, tax policy shifted to a focus on sharing the economic pie. It was thought that a high concentration of wealth had contributed mightily to the Depression and that the rich should pay a fair share to finance the creation of secure jobs and the consumption of goods that accompanied them. Consequently, the top tax rate on high earners, a modest 25% in 1931, rose steadily to 91% by 1963, at which point someone who earned $1 million kept only $270,000 after federal taxes, and someone who earned $10 million kept a mere $1.5 million. This started to change in the mid-1970s when a group of economists that included Arthur Laffer and the future Nobel laureates Robert Mundell and Herbert Simon argued that above a certain tax rate on the last dollar of their earnings, the amount of work individuals supplied to the marketplace would begin to fall, and the higher the rate, the more precipitous the drop. In fact, according to Laffer's famous curve,